Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode I'll be playing through Robot Commando, book 22 in the Fighting Fantasy sequence. Apologies if the sound is a little bit odd this episode. I am, for health-related reasons, podcasting from my bed with a cat asleep on my legs. So these are far from ideal recording conditions, but we will make the best of it. A quick status update before we get into the meat of things. I am now a full-time student and have gone from having all the free time in the world to having almost no free time. The podcast shouldn't suffer too much, but it does mean that I'm needing to dig a bit deeper to find time for everything else in my life. I am still working on my simple RPG called Saturday Morning Superstars. The rules are basically finished now. It's just a question of adding some additional material for GMs and trying to make it look a bit nicer than just a Word document. It's a very simple game designed to simulate Saturday morning cartoons like He-Man and Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. I think it's great, and it'll be going out to patrons the very moment I've got something that I'm happy to show you all. Probably won't be the end of February, but it should be before the end of March. And I've got another two projects lined up to follow that. One is a great little play-by-mail horror game. One is a post-apocalyptic RPG designed either for one-on-one or solo play. Everyone who signs up to support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom will get everything game related I ever produce as a thank you for their support. Now on with the show. I said on a previous episode that Robot Commando had a great elevator pitch. What would you do if you were a rancher on a distant planet using robots to herd vicious dinosaurs? That combined with the cover art by David Martin depicting a robot locked in combat with a Tyrannosaurus Rex makes this one of the most appealing-looking science fiction books in the whole run. It was written by the other Steve Jackson, the one from the States who wrote Munchkin, and marks his last writing credit in the Fighting Fantasy series, following Scorpion Swamp, which I quite liked, and Demons of the Deep, which I thought was great. I'm very excited to get into this one. I've done the bare minimum of research, so that I'm coming to it hopefully as fresh as I can, and I'm raring to go. Let's take a look at the rules. Your character in Robot Commando has the usual skill, stamina, and luck, and the rules for fighting are the same classic rules we've all seen in many books. You start with a sword and five med packs. Say boo to not having provisions, but hooray for not trying to do shooting combat rules on top of the usual 2d6 and add your skill score hand-to-hand rules. The new rules, because of course there have to be new rules, or are you even a proper fighting fantasy designer? These new rules cover fighting with robots, so I'm not going to complain. I love fighting with robots. Robots have armour, which is the same as stamina, but more metally. And they use your skill in combat, but the robot's speed and combat bonus may adjust your skill. So if your robot is faster than the other robot, you add one to your skill. And the robot's combat bonus is a positive or negative modifier to all combat roles. So some robots are good at fighting, some robots are bad at fighting. And they can also have special skills. Other than that, fighting with robots is exactly the same as fighting with big meaty fists. Now this is exactly the sort of extra rules I like. 
They model something I'm interested in, robot fights, and they work in a way that's simple and makes intuitive sense. You don't have to second guess the rules at all. Can't see any problems, and I can't stress enough how much the absence of shooting rules makes me happy. The fighting fantasy system might be basic, but it makes hand-to-hand quite tense. Um, I don't think it's ever been able to model gunplay in a way that feels dynamic and exciting. With the rules sorted out, I have generated my character, Scargill Oblaster, who has a skill of 10, a stamina of 21, and a luck of 10. And those were not 100% honestly rolled. As always, I tried to roll a slightly better than average character. So I guess you could say this Scargill Oblaster is at the low end of better than average. Right, with all that out of the way, let's dive into Robot Commando. I cannot wait to find out what this is like. You are a rancher in the land of Thalos. Your people and your enemies, the savage Karossians, have built huge robots for many purposes. With a skill operator at the controls, a robot can replace a hundred men to mine ore, erect buildings, move cargo, or just about anything else. The robots are also your best defence against the vicious dinosaurs of Thelos. Many years ago, the lizards caused much destruction, but now mankind has learned to tame the beasts, and many of the folk of Thelos, like you, are dinosaur ranchers. The ranchers use Mark 5A utility robots known as cowboys to herd the dinosaurs. Here's an exclamation mark on the end of that statement, just to let you know that the author is aware quite how ridiculous this is. But wild dinosaurs are still dangerous, and all robots have guns to defend themselves. Early one morning, you are just finishing your breakfast when one of your assistants staggers into the kitchen. So sleepy, he says. And he sits down at the table, pillows his head on his arms, and goes to sleep. You shake him, but you cannot rouse him. Alarmed, you go for help, but everyone else you see is asleep. You rush inside and switch on a radio, but you can get only scraps of messages. Everybody asleep. Corossian attack. Can't stay awake. Soon there is nothing to be heard. Sorry, I just made myself actually yawn by just pretending to be a person who is sleepy. I've actually made myself feel quite sleepy. You go outside again and pour cold water on several of your friends, but they just snore and mutter. Then you hear a rumble overhead, like thunder out of a clear sky. You look up. Streaking overhead is the unmistakable shape of a Corossian robot. You realise what must have happened. Somehow, the Corossians have managed to put everyone in Thelos to sleep. Everyone but you. For some reason, you are immune. Over the next few hours, you listen to the enemy communications and piece together the story. In the past, the Corossians had steered clear of Thalos, with its brave warriors and many robots. Your land was too tough to attack, but Minos, their leader, hit on a clever plan. His spies spread capsules of a virulent sleeping sickness, and before long, all Thalos was asleep. Very profligate with the exclamation marks, this book. And as we all know, the more you use, the less impact they have. 
Soon you hear a broadcast from Minos himself talking to his invading troops. An elite force of a thousand warriors with hundreds of robots has invaded Thalos. But this is only the beginning. With the population helpless, Minos plans to loot your country. Its riches and its robots will be his. Its people will be sold as slaves. And only you can stop it. Again, with the exclamation marks. I'm doing my best to indicate when they appear. You know what you have to do. You walk back inside and buckle your father's old sword to your waist. Food will be no problem. Supplies will be easy to find, but you take a pack of five medikits. Then you head for the robot parking area. Alone, you must defeat the Karossian invaders and free your land. So, a lot going on there. A nice little silhouette picture of a Triceratops, just to add another level of lunacy to the already lunatic tone of things. Uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And facing the first page, there is a full-page illustration looking down from above on a tree-lined avenue in which you can see many, many people just sprawled out asleep all over the floor. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice, nice enough bit of art. Not not sophisticated, I would say, but uh, it gets the job done. I should say that the interior art is by Gary Mays. At the robot parking area, you stop and look around. There are several robots there, but only two seem suitable for long distance travel. You study them both. Do you want to take a standard cowboy walking robot, which is not fast but sturdy and adaptable? Or would you like a flyer, which is very speedy and manoeuvrable, but not really intended for combat? I am going to take the standard cowboy walking robot. I am one of nature's pedestrians. I've never learned to drive a car. I can't ride a bike. And I've never been in a plane because I have a deep and abiding terror of heights. The walking robot is closest in spirit to my own spirit, which is when in doubt, Shank's pony is the way to go there. I'm liking this, getting a choice of two robots to start with. That seems fun. This man-shaped robot is designed for dinosaur herding. Could call it a man-bot, couldn't we? It moves by walking. It has weapons for dealing with rogue dinosaurs, but they are not as powerful as those of a war robot. So, uh, I can write down the stats for my cowboy robot, which has an armour of 10, a speed of medium, zero combat bonus, and no special abilities. Now you must choose a place to go. Now what are you going to do? You know that although there are probably Carosians everywhere, their base is at Capital City. But you can't just charge in there and attack them with your little robot! Exclamation mark. You must prepare well before you make your move. Fortunately, there are many cities in Thalos. You will be able to search the whole country for help, if need be, before you confront the invaders. Two large cities are fairly close. Do you want to go to the City of Knowledge or the City of Industry? Well, I spend all of my waking hours at the City of Knowledge at the moment, so I am going to go to the City of Industry. Yeah, I have had my fill of the Ivory Towers. I'm reading this book partly for escapism, and yes, industry feels more like escapism to me. You set course for the City of Industry, a place of great factories and machinery. There you reason you might find a robot or invention that would give you an advantage over the invaders. Are you in the dragonfly robot or the cowboy robot? I'm in the cowbot. After several hours of travel, you enter rocky terrain. 
The path narrows and you are forced to use both of your robot's hands just to climb. You wish you were in a vehicle that could just fly over all of this. I do not wish that. I do not wish that at all. Suddenly, you hear a roar. Looking behind you, you see a huge Tyrannosaurus sprinting through the rocks at you. Jaws agape, it lunges towards you, and Robot and Dinosaur fall to the ground, grappling fiercely. This huge meat-eater is the king of the dinosaurs, and attacks anything it sees to feed its savage appetites. You must fight it to the finish. So there's an illustration of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, just as there is on the cover, and I have to say the one on the cover is better. This Tyrannosaurus Rex is, I would say, competently drawn. doesn't have that classic T-Rex head shape, and it doesn't look all that threatening. I couldn't point to anything specific as being terribly wrong with it. Anyway, the Tyrannosaurus has an armour of eight. I love the fact that the T-Rex is statted up like a robot. So armour eight, speed fast, so it's faster than us. Uh, it's got a skill of nine and no special abilities. You cannot escape if it's faster than you are, and it is familiar with the territory anyway. So we've got to fight. And something interesting happens if the robot's armour is reduced to naught, we get to turn to a different section. Uh, presumably a section that says you are dead, but uh, we will we will find out if this Tyrannosaur manages to smash us to pieces. So for the first time, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Tyrannosaurus Rex. It reduced my robot from armour 10 to armour 4. As it's off on the way, it was going fine and it got down to 2. Uh, armor points left and, and suddenly just hit me like three times in a row. Disappointing, but we do live to robot fight another day and we move on. Your robot is scratched and dented, but you have won. Lose one stamina point for the bruises you took when the monster knocked your robot over. You continue on your way towards the city of industry. So my stamina now reduced to 20. You are in the city of industry. Normally, it is busy and bustling, but now you see no sign of life anywhere. Everyone is asleep. Everyone but you. Where will you go in your quest for useful artefacts? The fuel refining plant? The robot experimental centre? The tunnels underneath the city? Or would you rather explore at random? Or even leave? Well, I came to this book to do big robot fights, so the robot experimental centre is jumping out at me. That's where we will go. This is the Robot Experimental Centre. Uh, if you've been here before, you have to turn to another paragraph. But if you've not been here before, keep reading. You know little about the centre except its name. But you have heard rumours that top secret work is being done here. Intriguing. You are in the lobby of the Robot Experimental Centre. You read the directory and see that different sorts of work are being done on different floors of the building. Several seem interesting. Where will you go? So uh, we've got uh, second floor interface mechanisms, third floor weapons development, sixth floor amplifier project, and tenth floor deteronics. Or we can leave. Well, I'm not too proud to admit that I don't know what deteronics are. So I'm going to go and find out what deteronics are. 
On the tenth floor, you find an incredible confusion of cubby holes and nothing that looks like a robot or a device. There are tall bookshelves everywhere and more books on the floor and desks. Do you wish to continue to investigate or would you rather return to the lobby? I will continue to investigate. You poke around looking for something useful. You find nothing. But a huge book falls from a high shelf and hits you on the head. Lose one stamina point. The other bookshelves are teetering ominously. You leave in disgust and return to the lobby. So my stamina now reduced to 19. So we're back on the ground floor. So I guess we will go to my second favourite thing in the world, other than words I don't know what they mean, which is weapons development on the third floor. When you leave the lift on the third floor, you immediately spy a man-sized guard robot standing in the hallway. Sorry, no admittance, squawks its mechanical voice. What will you do? Try and reason with the robot, attack the robot, or go to another floor? So there's a picture of the guard robot, which aside from being made of metal, is also just wearing a security guard uniform, which seems somewhat superfluous to requirements. Is there any reasoning with a robot? Let's find out. Let's find out whether we can try and reason with the robot, we can attack the robot, or go to another floor. So let's try and reason with the robot. While you are arguing with the machine, it picks you up none too gently and tosses you back into the lift. Lose one stamina point. So you realise I don't know how much stamina the med kits actually restore. Let's have a look. One point of stamina. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, but anyway, stamina 18. Am I going to fight the robot? I mean, I've got a sword, slightly bizarrely, so let's fight the robot. Your mission is more important than this asinine robot. You'll have to deal with it by force. The guard robot has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 10. And as a human-sized robot, you fight it as though it were a human foe. And you can escape at any time. For the second time, this adventure, am I going to roll some dice? I have defeated the robot guard. You can hear any noise in the background. That is my cat enthusiastically washing himself. I honestly don't have the heart to throw him out. You step over the fragments of the smashed robot and enter the laboratory. Inside you find something very interesting. The prototype for a Seeker missile. There is only one, but it looks very handy. It can be attached to the outside of any robot. It can be used only when you are piloting a robot, not in personal combat. It may be fired at any time between attack rounds. Okay, so you've got to do at least one attack round before you, uh, you fire it. And it will automatically hit and reduce the robot's armour by 10. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, you can install the Seeker missile now or save it for another robot. It may be moved from one robot to another, but it is lost if the robot carrying it is lost or if it is fired. So, yeah, we may as well attach it to the cowboy, which is on armour 4. I feel like that might just stop it from being scrapped. So that's kind of cool. You are back at your robot. Do you want to explore elsewhere in the city of industry or go to a new destination? I will carry on exploring, I think. So I've got plenty of stamina. So maybe we could go and have a look. We've got choices of the fuel refining plant, uh, the tunnels under the city. Uh, we could just explore or leave the city. Or we could go back to the robot experimental center if we want. Um, I'm curious to see what happens if you go back to the robot experimental center. Is the uh, the designer in me 
talking more than the uh, the gamer, I think. But I mean, yeah, I'm curious just to see what happens if you try and revisit the same location. So this is the robot experimental center. Have you been here before? I have. You have returned to the robot experimental center. Did you acquire the seeker missile on a previous visit? I did. Just in time, you realize that the lobby is full of guard robots like the one you have fought before. You quickly return to your robot and leave the area of the center. That makes sense. Also suggests the seeker missile is the best thing you can get from the robot center, or at least the most obviously good thing you can get. Okay, well, let's go and have a look at the tunnels underneath the city. I love a good tunnel, me. And there might be some people who've escaped the sleeping gas under there. You park your robot outside the tunnel entrance and slip inside. You don't know what to expect. You've never been in the tunnel system, and its aura of secrecy attracts you. The tunnels are dimly lit, but you can see well enough. Soon, you come to a turning. Do you want to go right or left? Well, at the risk of uh, harping on, we always go left. We're going to go left. The tunnel winds until you have lost all sense of direction, which for me would be one wind. That is a number of winds necessary for me to lose direction. One singular wind. Then it forks. One seems to go up and the other turns downwards. Do you want to go up or do you want to go down? Uh, I guess we'll go down because like, we're trying to find interesting things underground. I like the way that it was written so that it kind of goes, oh, I bet you're intrigued by underground things, as indeed I was. The tunnel goes lower and lower into the earth. Then it opens into a wide, dimly lit vault. Do you want to enter the vault or continue downwards? Let's have a look in the old vault. This area proves to be full of rusting, abandoned robots. At the other end of the vault is a huge lift. The control panel has three coloured buttons, but none are marked. The lift contains a huge robot. In the dimness, you cannot make out what type it is, but it has treads and claws. Do you want to enter the lift and push a button at random? I definitely do wish to enter the lift and push a button at random. Which button will you press? Green, red or blue? Well... Green and red are both on traffic lights. Blue isn't, so it feels like the odd one out, so I'm going to press blue. I mean, green, go, red, stop, blue, have a nice day. The lift doors clang shut and it begins to descend. After about five minutes, it stops again. Outside is a corridor even dimmer than the area you just left. The door opens just wide enough for you to squeeze out. Do you want to press another button or step out and go down the corridor? Oh, press another button. Let's see what green does. The lift doors shudder and the lift drops half a metre and stops. The light flickers on and then off. Do you want to push another button? I definitely do. Let's go for the red button. The rusty lift clangs shut and begins to ascend. Higher and higher it goes. Then, with a shriek, the cable snaps. The lift descends again much faster when it stops kilometres below the surface. Your adventure is over. Well, is it though? Do we want a sausagey finger bookmark? I think we do. I think we do. I've been running the recording for about a little over half an hour. I think I knew one of those was going to kill me. So let's uh, go back to when we pressed the blue button. The weirdly wobbly uh, rewind time. So the lift doors clang shut and begins to descend. After about five minutes, it stops again. Outside is a corridor even dimmer than the area you just left. So we have to step out and go down the corridor.
Okay, we're in this sort of weird inception-y, is that really the reference we want? No, I'll go with it. We're in this weird inception-y thing where the corridor we've just come out of in the lift is actually the same corridor we entered into because the tunnel now goes lower and lower into the earth and opens into a wide, dimly lit vault which you can enter or you can continue downwards. And I entered the vault and it leads literally to the room with the lift and the robot that I just left. So I can go round and round in this kind of infinite recursion loop if I want, which is confusing but kind of interesting. It's an unusual way of trying to make the game world seem bigger than it is through recursion, which I think is quite interesting. The idea of these endless tunnels, all of which are sort of the same. So we can go back into the vault, which I will, because the vault has a small corridor beside the lift which I can leave via so that's what I will do. The corridor levels off and passes a small alcove. Within the alcove is a small lift just big enough for one person. Do you want to get into the lift and press the button or continue down the corridor? Okay so there's another recursion here because if you carry on down the corridor it takes you to the same place that the corridor that I got out of from the lift. All of these corridors are the same corridor this is head-scratchingly bizarre. This feels more appropriate to a dream narrative than to a, a physical narrative. So I can either carry on down the corridor, which goes as if I'd never gone into the vault. Oh, this is this is head head-meltingly weird. Uh, so I guess I have to get into the lift, as it's the only new option I have. I think the lift shoots quickly upward. The force of its acceleration almost knocks you down and it continues for a long time. Suddenly the lift door opens. You are in the lobby of the Robot Experimental Centre. Do you want to cross the square and re-enter your robot or investigate the Robot Experimental Centre? Well, the Robot Experimental Centre is full of robot guards, so if I try and investigate I'll be chased by the guards, so I have to re-enter my robot. You are back in your robot. Do you want to explore somewhere else in the city? So I guess we could go and have a look at the fuel refining plant. We'll do that. Well, I was expecting a degree of silliness in this book, but I don't think I was expecting a kind of Kafkaesque non-maze. I'll be talking about that, I'm sure, much more at the end. You decide to visit the fuel refining plant. This is where the radioactive ores that power the robots are processed. A single block of fuel will drive a robot for a year. As you approach, you realise that some of the robots standing around the plant are active. The Karossians have sent a force to garrison this strategic point. You want to proceed normally, attack fully, or try a ruse. What sort of ruse could I possibly try? I guess we're going to find out, because that's what I'm going to do. If you've already been challenged by Karossian soldiers using a number as a password, you can remember that number. And you can turn to that reference. Otherwise, we go to a different reference. Over the radio comes a challenge. 88! If you know the countersign that is required for that password, turn to the number of the countersign. If you do not, and I do not, turn to the next paragraph. The Karossians fire on you. Lose one armour point and fight. So, Cowbot now down to three armour. You must fight the enemy robots. There are two of them, both tripod robots. These speedy machines walk about on three legs. They have metal tentacles that can carry guns or other devices. You recognise them as handling machines belonging to the fuel plant. The Karossians have taken them over as guard robots. You must fight them both at once. Okay, 
So it's a standard uh, multiple combatants rules where I choose who I attack, then I roll everyone's attack strength, and I can only hurt the one that I've chosen to attack. I have to decide before I roll. Reading that was entirely academic because the first tripod has got armor 7, it's fast, and a skill of 8, and the second tripod has got armor 7, it's fast, and it has a skill of 10. I've got to beat that one four times unless I use luck, which I guess I will. So I've got to beat the second robot three times with a luck roll in a row without suffering any damage from the first robot. So in the expectation that I'm going to get smashed into tiny, tiny robot pieces, I'm going to roll some dice. I lasted two attack rounds for the pair of robots smashed me to pieces. I should say there is a very nice illustration of the two robots. I've been a bit equivocal, I would say, about the quality of Mr. May's artwork, but the tripods look great. And they'll be very familiar, I think, to uh, listeners of a certain age, either from, I guess, the Tripods TV show or the books that were written, or indeed from uh, the H.G. Wells novel that's got tripods. These uh, robots look like they've got a bit of both, but I have been defeated, so I must find out what happens. The robot falls and you lie stunned in the wreckage. The tentacles of a tripod pull you out. You are a prisoner of the Carossians. You have failed in your mission. Your adventure is over. So, uh, there we go. Um, a bit of a shame I didn't manage to get further into the adventure, but that's the uh, that's the risk I take every single time. Like even with the sausagey finger bookmark rule, there's always going to be the odd occasions where events just go against me, and that was definitely one of those occasions. There seems like there's a lot of this book I've still yet to see, so I will be doing some more playthroughs off microphone to try and finish it. And once I've done that, I will be back for you in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. Robot Commando then. It's a week later in my time and I've had a chance to play through several times. And my verdict? It's very, very good. It's verging on great. If it falls a little bit short of great, it's largely down to the writing style. Adventure game books are both game and book. They exist in this wonderful grey area between the two, where the elements can either work in harmony or they can work against each other. Too much book and you end up feeling like you're not sufficiently involved in making decisions, and that was a problem the official Dungeons & Dragons gamebook we covered somewhere back in 2021. It was much more interested in telling you things that happened to you than letting you choose the things that happened to you. It was telling you a story and occasionally inviting you to contribute. You could change the ending, but not in a way that felt satisfying because the gap between choice and consequence was just too great. Robot Commando falls on the other side of the fence. The gaming ideas are very prominent, which leads you to feel less involved in the story you become more aware that you are playing a game, and that makes the narrative feel less compelling. It's partly a design decision. It's a consequence of how Steve Jackson USA has chosen to construct the book, but it's also a consequence of the prose being a bit flat and emotionless at times. It's quite a slender book compared to some in the series, even though it's full 400 paragraphs, and I think it could have used 
a few more words to help immerse you in this wonderfully exuberant world that Steve Jackson USA has created. That is pretty much my only substantial criticism, but it threads through the praise I'm about to heap on the book, and it qualifies that praise slightly. So I wanted to get that out of the way to begin with before moving on to some of the things that really worked. The concept is probably the best science fiction concept so far. Giant robots, actually mechs if you want to get technical, and dinosaurs, that is a marriage made in heaven. I love me some media about robots fighting. Big, lumbering robots for preference, but I do also think Neon Genesis Evangelion is some of the greatest TV ever made. I love Pacific Rim, I love robot jocks, real steel, all that kind of stuff. I played Mech Warrior 2 to death back in the day, just because it was so exciting to be in the cockpit of a giant mech. I think big robots fighting is one of life's great pleasures alongside Toast with Marmite, Snooker and writers who are safely dead and who can't disappoint you anymore. So it was a source of great joy to me to discover that Steve Jackson USA has managed to implement robot fights in a way that feels different to the usual hand-to-hand -hand rules but still easily recognisable as the same system. Giving each robot a different armour, speed and combat modifier already creates a whole bunch of possible mechs, but when you add in special rules which give the player access to the kind of combat tricks, previously largely the preserve of monsters, you get something really special. And at the same time, basing the fights off your character's skill means that you still have that link to the character which persists. Yet at the same time, it makes it clear that the robot is not your character. It's not a second character, it's a thing that your character uses. It's simple, it's elegant, but the ramifications are enormous. Take armour, for example. That's the only one I'm really going to discuss in detail. Armour is finite. It's usually a lot lower than your character's starting stamina. It's hard to repair. You have to find places where you can repair it in the adventure. Some robots are very strong but have very little armour, meaning that you might only be able to use them in a few fights. But there's loads of robots lying around the place, so you can swap them out quite easily. But when you come to that decision, do you want to give up your current robot's speed and combat bonus for something more sluggish but which has got more remaining armour? It's a risk-reward decision that will have a knock-on effect for the rest of the playthrough, and I just love it. You don't always die when your robot's armour runs out. That's superb design choice because it means that there are negative consequences to losing a fight, but that doesn't have to be a binary live or die, because sometimes you do die, but sometimes there might be a way to escape, or perhaps grab whatever rubbish robot is lying around. And even if it is a bit rubbish, it's possible you might remember where there's a somewhat better robot you passed up on earlier. The book's written in such a way that going back to get that robot is definitely a possibility. We'll talk more about the open world element in a moment, but the key takeaway here is that robot fighting feels satisfying, choosing your robot always feels consequential, and it is a great way to mess around with stamina scores to give different sections of the book different stakes. In a classic fighting fantasy game book, managing stamina within the playthrough 
is often a really difficult thing. And by just simply resetting max stamina to a different total whenever the book feels like, it opens up a vast design space and once again reminds me that fighting fantasy might just be the best combat system in role-playing. It's certainly the best combat system in adventure gamebook design. I've not seen anything better. So the rules deliver on the fantasy. And the fantasy is beating up dinosaurs with giant robots. That's an absolute win. You cannot fail to be delighted by the delivery of that premise if you're someone like me who loves both giant robots and dinosaurs. It's clear that Steve Jackson USA does not care for a linear structure in his books. Scorpion Swamp was all about the freedom to explore the swamp. Demons of the Deep was cleverly non-linear, albeit more linear than Scorpion Swamp, and Robot Commando arguably goes even further by giving you a whole country, most of a planet, it feels like, to explore. It's done that by creating hubs, here mostly cities, with sets of encounters tied to each city, some of which you can revisit and some of which you can't. They combine a sense of freedom with a sense of time passing and your actions having consequences that's very, very difficult to achieve, but he manages to thread that needle remarkably well. Being able to move around a planet with such freedom, that is unprecedented, even if the travel between cities feels a little bit anticlimactic, because Jackson wants to try and avoid having too many repeating encounters, and yeah, it would be very hard to write those travelling encounters in a way that felt interesting and varied the most you could probably come up with would be a wandering monster kind of chart or maybe some links to discrete repeatable encounters. It would take up a lot of space in the end for arguably a relatively minimal game. So I can see why he's approached it the way he has. Now the cities themselves, they feel nicely designed. There's a good mix of different encounters, both giant robot sized and human sized. Lots of imagination has gone into them. The curious thing is, of course, that there's no one, or more or less no one, to meet in these cities. The silly plot point about the sleeping gas serves an incredibly important purpose, because if there's one thing that game books handle extremely badly, it's meeting people twice. Human, or recognisably humanoid, NPCs are one of the hardest things to handle in a game book, and Jackson simply sidesteps the issue with his sleeping gas giving us this odd experience whereby there are huge cities, but they're functionally empty, except for robots who can be relied upon to behave exactly the same way every time they meet the same person, because robots are going to robot. Now, it's not that you can't write bustling cities in a game book. Appointment with Fear does a really, really good job of this, as famously does City of Thieves. It's more that they interact weirdly with repeating encounters. You can theoretically write around it, but readers, being people, are much quicker to notice things being weird about sentient people than they are about grizzly bears, robots, and little green, unfathomable aliens. You can certainly argue that Jackson's solution is less than elegant, and that's fair, but it gets the job done, and it does avoid those strange situations caused by being able to visit the same place many different times. 
On a personal level, I think most cities would be enormously improved by everyone in them being asleep, but that's part of my unique intellectual architecture. So while it feels odd as a narrative, there is something very nice about being able to go back to a city when a clue from another city suddenly makes sense of an encounter you had earlier. That's something that very few game books really make use of, and I love it when it does occur, because it's so hard to write multiple encounters in the same physical space. I love it when game books take on that challenge, and Robot Commando takes it on and deals with it really well. There's one encounter in particular I want to call out, mostly for its abiding strangeness. There's a tunnel section which contains nothing except an entire dimension designed by M.C. Escher. All of the tunnels lead back to each other in this odd recursive way that makes zero intuitive sense and makes mapping it an exercise in lunacy. But it is really interesting from a design point of view. It's a maze, but not in any traditional sense. You've got relatively few paragraphs, but they all point to each other in this strange way that creates the disorientation of a maze, but one that you can easily track the parts you haven't visited. So it's actually very small in terms of the number of paragraphs, but it feels as big as you want it to feel until you actually manage to hit on the correct exit. That, to me, is the holy grail of maze design in a game book. I don't like mazes. I can see why they're there, but I don't generally like them. A couple of episodes ago, I covered Jonathan Green's Alice in Wonderland-inspired gamebook, and that also had a maze. And that felt pretty good to explore because of the way, again, it looped back on itself in a way that meant you could blunder your way through and waste only time. It was very hard to get properly trapped in it. This is almost the same, but whereas that maze was quite expansive in terms of paragraphs, this is boiled down to a bare minimum. And it's really clever because it gives you that maze experience without that frustration of thinking you're never going to find your way out. And that is my least favourite thing in any kind of game, to be honest, is being stuck in a situation with no idea of how to progress. So top marks for the maze, even if it does feel oddly Lynchian in the context of a story about giant robots fighting dinosaurs. Like the previous two Steve Jackson USA books, there's multiple endings to this one. Uh, they're not that hard. One ending is very easy. But there's some lovely moments where you can see clues for more difficult avenues through the story being dropped in various places, and that tantalises you in the best possible way. The book lets you know that there's three possible endings up front, which primes you to keep an eye out for various clues. I really like it. And the three endings each make sense within the gently ludicrous parameters of the story that's being told. Now, of course, one of the issues with the book is that there's not much sense of dynamic narrative at play. It's very much a set of discrete encounters that come together to lead to a set of clues that send you to specific places in order to do specific things. You don't generally, through the bulk of the story get much sense of escalation you don't get much sense of the narrative being pushed forward and the stakes being raised as you approach the terminus of your adventure and again that is purely down to the design choices that steve jackson usa has made it's not a criticism it's an inevitable consequence of this 
kind of gaming experience. And I think it's a very valid gaming experience. As always, in my head, there is some kind of utterly perfect adventure game book that can do all of these different things without being like 10,000 paragraphs long. But that is probably a chimera, some sort of grail quest for me in later life to try and get towards and always fail. And that's probably as it should be. There should always be some kind of perfect iteration of a phenomena that you can chase after, even if the reality is you have to make these kind of compromises like Steve Jackson USA has done in this book. Last thing I really want to shout out is the art. Gary Mays has been well briefed and his art reflects the clear shout outs in the text to various robot related properties. The bad guys combat robots are strongly modelled on the Decepticon Seekers from Transformers and the art reflects that very nicely. You've got tripods making an appearance too and they've got that classic 1980s science fiction feel. It's really good, strong, descriptive artwork that's determined to show you things that exist in the world and go beyond the slightly stilted descriptions of the prose and make them much more evocative. I think that's exactly what the art in game books should do. I'm less convinced by his dinosaurs, but I'm not going to turn down a picture of a dinosaur. I'm not some crazy person. Okay, that's everything I wanted to talk about. I can't recommend this book highly enough as a playing experience. It's highly repeatable, beautifully designed and gloriously unabashedly silly in a way that I wish more of the science fiction books had this kind of joie de vivre to them. It's probably the best science fiction book so far. There's been some others that I have enjoyed a lot. Rebel Planet, I think, was pretty good. Rings of Kether was pretty good. But I think this probably stands on another level to those. Not least because I think it would be very easy to create additional stories based around the systems that Steve Jackson USA has come up with. They feel like systems with a lot of legs to them. So, you know, if you wanted to write a game book based on mech smashing action, it would be very easy to do so. Well, that's all from me. Next episode should be a regular fighting fantasy book, book 23, entitled Masks of Mayhem which is back in our familiar classic fantasy territory. So that'll be nice. I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you want to contact me, you can do so by emailing me on hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. It's always lovely to hear from people. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not give me a little rating or a review if you've got the time? That would be super helpful. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>